You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life on the Palouse, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. So for the last couple of weeks, we have been uh, working our way through the book of Acts, and now, now this series has never been intended to be a, a very in-depth dive into the book of Acts. We're just kind of skipping our way through and, and selecting some specific accounts that we want to talk about that we think are significant uh, to God's movement and establishment of the church. Uh, and as we talked last week and saw last week, something that is happening within this first section of the, of the book of Acts is that God is indeed doing something mighty, and he is establishing a whole new temple community. And it's whole new, and it's different because instead of God's presence living in a building somewhere, God's presence now lives within us, his people, his followers, everywhere we go. And that's what we got to see last week. And today, as we dive further into Acts, uh, we're going to discuss an account that, honestly, I didn't think was going to make the cut when we were building this series. A couple months ago, as we were building it, coming, going through the book of Acts, I remember paging through the book of Acts and looking at the headings that are in there. I came across Acts 5. I was like, wow, that's a really weird story. I'm going to put that one in the hopper for a possibility. And I brought it to the, to the sermon club. I'm like, Here, here's an idea, fully expecting that if it was chosen, that Josh would do this sermon, not me. Uh, alas, he's not here. So it backfired, and I get to talk about it today. But I'm excited about it because... It is a difficult section of text. Uh, It's one of those sections of text that you can come across as you're reading through God's word, and it makes no sense. And you're like, I don't know what to do with this thing. And like the typical response, or a couple of typical responses when when we come across something that's difficult in the text, is that we're like, well, I don't get that. I'm going to ignore it and just keep on moving. We just keep reading and we pretend like it doesn't exist. Or we sit on it and we start asking questions. Like, what in the world is happening here? Why is God doing this? Why is he allowing this thing to happen? And those questions are good. And we should be asking them. But what can happen is if we're asking those questions by ourselves, many people eventually walk away from their faith because they can't find answers or explanations as to why the text is saying what it's saying. And last week, we, we started this, this journey. I, I challenge you guys to, to see that God's word is connected throughout his text. You remember that? And so what I want us to do today is that I want us to to dive into this this section of the text that is difficult, that can be hard to really wrestle with, but I want us to do it as a community. And I want us to walk away okay if we have no answers, okay if we have some answers, but more I want us to walk away with an understanding of who our God is and what he's asking us to do. 
So, if you have your Bibles, or you have your Bible app, we're going to jump into Acts. Uh, the account that I'm talking about is in Acts chapter 5, but we're going to start in Acts chapter 4. As a side note, if you don't know how the Bible was pieced together, like the chapters and the verses that are in your text were not there. Luke did not write those in as he penned this, this letter. Right, those were added hundreds of years later for our convenience to kind of point people in certain directions. But the problem is, is that they put those separations sometimes in the wrong spot. So we have to start today in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, in order to get the whole story of what's going on. All right? Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Here's what God's word says. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that, all, <clears throat> that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses would sell them. And they brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? And have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came, from, came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out to be, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that, that is the price. And Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. 
great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is weird. Right? Like it it doesn't leave you with a warm fuzzy feeling. It leaves a bad taste in your mouth, right? Because you're like, how how does this happen? People died because they lied about how much they gave to the church? Man, this is crazy. It doesn't seem like something a loving God would do. A, a God who is, who is full of grace and mercy and forgiveness, the God that we have come to know so well through Jesus. And actually on the surface, it kind of, it kind of feels unfair, if I'm honest. It seems unfair that these guys have this punishment, especially when we have headlines every year, it feels like, of some church leader or parachurch organization lay leader or some, somebody in ministry who gets in trouble. Some sort of scandal comes out, whether it has to do with, you know, embezzlement or, or lying or sexual misconduct. Like, why did Ananias and Sapphira have to die for lying but all these people that we see today, it just seems like nothing happens to them. I think that for us to begin to really, truly get some answers for, for our questions with this is we have, to, we have to first understand what is going on in the text. We've got to better understand this account of Ananias and Sapphira. I am, a, I am a huge advocate now. I am a big believer that the best way to truly understand God's word is to study his text in context. We got to know what's going on in and around the world that, that when, this was, uh, when this was written to better understand it. And as I've come to be a, be a big believer in context, I've learned about six different lenses that are helpful for us as we look at the context of what's going on in the text. And so I want to briefly give you guys the six, and then we're going we're to use one of them today to help us try to understand what's going on with Ananias and Sapphira. All right, so six different lenses of context. The first one is a literary lens. All right, so this is looking at the t- section of text you're looking at, you're reading, and trying to figure out what the genre is. Is it a poem? Is it a letter? Is it a historical writing? Well, when, you f- when you know that, it's going to help you understand how to better read it. A second lens is linguistic. This is looking at the actual words that are being used. What is the Greek? What does the Hebrew say? Where have these words been used before? And as you start to dig into that, you can get a, bigger, a better idea and understanding of what they're saying. Uh, there's a visual lens. You've all heard the saying, a picture is worth a thousand words. And so if you can see what they're talking about or see the area that they're at, it just helps, 
give life, a new life to what you're reading. A fourth lens is a geographical, kind of goes along with the visual. So where are you at? Where are you at on the map? What's the terrain like? What has happened in that spot before? So as you start to dig into that, you're like, okay, I've seen this before. Oh, I'm, I'm in the Galilee. I'm surrounded by hills. It's a low spot. And you get to start to really get a visual and understanding of what's happening. A fifth one is a cultural lens. What kind of beliefs does this particular culture have? Is it a culture where shame and honor is a big part of what they do daily? Are they, are they big into hospitality? Like, who are they? And when you have a better understanding of who that culture is, you're going to understand what you're reading better. And the last one is historical. And that's the one I want us to use today. And now, like, when you're studying a piece of text, sometimes you use all six of these lenses to better understand it, sometimes just one or two. Well, we're just going to use the one. And there's several questions that we could ask ourselves about this, the account of Ananias and Sapphira to try to figure out what is historically going on. But the one I want us to ask ourselves is this. What has gone on in the past that is uh, informing this current event? So is there something similar to this, a time that God, as he was establishing a new community, people lose their lives? So as we go back in the text and we start to look for something that is similar to the story of Ananias and Sapphira, we find out that, in fact, it has happened before. Twice. So let's, let's jump back and let's talk about these two, two experiences. Let's find out what was going on and see if that helps us inform the story of Ananias and Sapphira. So the first time it happens... It, it appears in the book of Leviticus. Now, we've been talking about uh, what goes on with God rescuing the people out of Egypt a little bit. I talked about it last week. But if you remember, so God pulls them out of Egypt, brings them through the Red Sea, sets them at the foot of, foot of Mount Sinai, and they receive God's word, his instructions for living. Their instructions on how they are going to be a blessing to all people. But included in those instructions are some very specific ways that they are to worship God. He establishes the tabernacle and there are very specific things that they are supposed to do. And as we come to Leviticus chapter 10, we are introduced to two of Aaron's sons. Their names are Nadab and Abihu. And they are priests just like Aaron. And so it's their responsibility to do the daily worship and the daily sacrifices and and burnt offerings and stuff. But one day, these two guys go into the tabernacle to uh, to do a burnt offering of incense. But they decide that they're going to do it different today. Instead of doing it the way that God had introduced to them and told them to do it, They did it their own way. They brought fire in in a way that was not supposed to be done. And their disobedience cost them their lives. 
That's the first time it happens. Later on in the text, later on in Israel's story, about 40-ish years later, a new generation has risen up. The old generation, the ones that had come out with Moses and Aaron, all died out wandering the desert. So God is using this new generation who grew up in the desert, in the wilderness, to go into the promised land and settle it and take it and establish this new community that he had called them to establish. And as they come across the Jordan, the first city they come to is a fortified city called Jericho that nobody had been able to conquer. Giant walls, no ways in. And God says, I'm going to give you that city. But again, he gives very specific instructions. You're going to do it this way. You're going to walk around it for days. And then you're going to scream and the walls will fall. But I have other instructions for you too. Do not take anything out of the city for yourself. All of the gold, all the silver, all the bronze, all of the devoted things that are in there are to be given to, back to me. You are not supposed to take anything for yourself. And so they go in, they do the things, the walls fall, Jericho falls, they take the city, and everything seems okay. But then they move on to the next little town, which is so small, they're like, ah, we don't need to send a whole army there, we'll just send a small group of 3,000 people, and they go there, and they get their tails kicked. And 36 guys die. And the entire nation is distraught because of this. And they're like, what is going on? And God reveals to Joshua, he's like, hey, somebody took something they weren't supposed to take. Someone took some of the devoted things that were supposed to be given to me from Jericho for themselves. And so through a process of elimination and revelation with God's power, Joshua is able to narrow it down to a man named Achan from the tribe of Judah. And when he confronts Achan, he says, what, what did you do? What happened? He said, well, I was there and I just saw those things and they just, I just needed to have them. They just, it was a, a beautiful robe and all this gold and silver. I just, I took it for myself and I went and buried it in the floor of my tent. An action that would have been very difficult to hide from his family as he was digging that hole putting that stuff in there. And because of Achan's disobedience, it cost him his life. But not only his life, but also his family's life. In both of these accounts, we can see there's a group of people that God has, has chosen to establish as his representatives, as his priests to the world. And that role comes with high expectations and high standards. Because they have to accurately reflect who God is and what it looks like to be in relationship with him. And as these people are learning what it means to be God's kingdom of priests, compromise, dishonesty, selfishness, greed, and disobedience, characteristics that are contrary to who God is, could not be allowed to be a part of the community's foundation that it was establishing. And so God had to step in. 
and remove those from the community. He would not allow those poisons to be there at the very beginning of this new community that was supposed to be a blessing to all generations. So now that we've peeked through a lens of his historical uh, context, and we see that this has happened before, let's jump back to Ananias and Sapphira and see if there's anything that we can take from those accounts to inform us on what's going on with Ananias and Sapphira. I alluded to it earlier when we started, and it bears repeating now, that in those first four chapters of Acts, what is going on is that God is establishing a new community. And they have responsibilities, and they have roles, just like we saw with, with uh, the, the nation of Israel in Leviticus and in Joshua. And this new community of people that is still very fresh and very susceptible and fragile as it is establishing the foundation is coming together. And they're learning what it means to to love one another, to, to take care of one another, to break down the walls of social and economic statuses. We're all on the same playing field. And then Ananias and Sapphira come on and they present this this new community with a challenge. You know, they made this decision, Ananias and Sapphira together, to sell a piece of property and give money to the community to help those who are unable to survive on their own. Which is good, right? In and of itself, at a base level, like what they did was not wrong to sell property and give it back to the church. But in the, in the midst of that process somewhere, they made another decision. And it was a decision for themselves, not the community. And they decided to be dishonest about how much it was actually sold for when they presented it to the apostles. And we can conjecture and guess, but we may never know why these guys were motivated to do this. You know, maybe, maybe they saw what had happened with Barnabas and saw like how he was praised and lifted up maybe. And they're like, wow, we want that. We want that recognition. We want to be able to be recognized in this new community as generous people. But their act was not generous. It was dishonest. And God had to step in once again to protect his community. And it cost them their lives. And I use that word protect intentionally because I believe that's what God does. I believe he does it all the time. But let, let's, let's say that he doesn't step in, okay? Because 
it still feels a little unfair. But let's, let's play it out. Let's pretend like Ananias and Sapphira are given mercy, are given grace and forgiveness by God, and what they did doesn't come out. And let's walk this down a little bit. What could possibly have happened? Well, I think we can use the framework of Barnabas' life after this as a, as a possibility. If you don't know much about Barnabas, he goes from here to later on in the book of Acts as being one of the vital pieces of the gospel of Jesus spreading into the Roman Empire, going into Asia Minor. He's the guy who goes and recruits Paul and disciples him and brings them along with him as they plant churches throughout the kingdom of Rome. So let's say Ananias and Sapphira give their gift. Nobody finds out. They're all, they're hailed as being generous and everybody loves them. And as time goes by, you know, they start to gain more influence. And they're asked to lead a life group. And then they're asked to lead somewhere else within the church. And they start to gain influence and authority within the church. And they're asked to lead people. Lead people in what it looks like to to walk like Jesus walked. To live as Jesus lived. To lead as Jesus led. Because Jesus is the consummate leader, right? He is the perfect example of what a leader should be. He lived out all the characteristics perfectly. And there's a list that we could make, and I would say that probably, for me, on the top of that list are the characteristics of honesty and integrity. I love the, the definition that C.S. Lewis gives of what integrity is His quote says, integrity is doing the right thing even when no one is looking. And I know as we look at that word right, it can be a hard word. It can bring up conversation, can bring up argument because it feels like we are in a time where people are creating their own definition of right. But that's not a new thing. Because Ananias and Sapphira seemed to do the same thing. I bet you they would tell you that they were doing the thing that was right for them. That maybe they would say, we were acting in integrity. We were basing it off what we thought was right for us. But integrity cannot exist without honesty. And they were dishonest. Because they started with a definition of right that did not line up with God's. A leader, actually any person, who lacks honesty and integrity begins to poison the people that are around them with their negativity, their their deception, their selfishness. And the more time people would have probably spent with Ananias and Sapphira, the more they would see that they, they were not actually authentic people. They were shallow, dishonest, only in it for what they could get out of it. 
not for what they could do for the glory of God or for the good of the people. And eventually, they would fall. And who knows what that would have done to the the people that they had been investing in their lives into up to that point. I know I made a lot of assumptions as to what may have happened with Ananias and Sapphira. But if there is only one thing, if I died today, if there was only one thing that I learned in my 42 short years of life here on earth, is that, that God will always protect his church. Always. That's what he did with Ananias and Sapphira. When the church was at its most vulnerable stages of being established, he had to remove the dishonesty. He could not allow dishonesty, a lack of integrity, or selfishness to permeate through this new temple community that he was establishing. Some of you might think, okay, if that's true, why isn't he protecting his church today? Why is he allowing things to happen that are happening? Well, I would argue that he is still protecting his church. Otherwise, we wouldn't know about that stuff. He shines light into the dark corners, into the thing, onto the things that we try to hide from him and from our community. He always brings to light that stuff because he loves us too much to leave us in the dark. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't think I've heard of any other stories in recent years of people dropping dead like Ananias and Sapphira because they lied, because they were found out, because of any of the stuff that we know that happens. But I do know that I have seen people's lives be shattered because of lack of integrity. I've seen reputations be killed because of lack of dishonesty and integrity. I've seen relationships die because of a lack of integrity. Just as crucial as it was for the early church, it is still vital for us today to live a life of radical honesty and integrity. Not because the foundation of this new temple is at risk, but because that is who our God is. And as his kingdom of priests, we are to live in such a way that people see him for who he really is. We got to make sure that the person who is on the inside is the person that people see on the outside. And to do this, we have to live a life from a place where I, I don't think Ananias and Sapphira started. But we have to start in, in a posture of life that I think is really well described by this quote from Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China back in the 1800s, and he said, 
Christ is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. And that is a frightening statement. Because I bet every one of us, and myself included, have had days and seasons in our lives when this was not true for us, that Christ was Lord of all. And so it was not Lord at all. And it is scary and daunting to think about how do I do this? How do I live out a life that he is actually Lord of all? Well, it's an everyday thing. We start out each and every day that way. Every day is a new day. But I want to give you guys something that you could start with. I want to give you a prayer that, if you're courageous enough to pray it, is going to help you in living a life like this. King David, who's described as someone who was after God's own heart, writes in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. He says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. As we move to our time of communion together, I want this to be our prayer. If you're new here with us, we do communion each week. You don't have to be a, a real-life partner or a regular attender to, to celebrate with us. We just ask that you have, have made that decision. You are walking it out the best that you can every day to make Jesus Christ Lord of all. If you've done that, we'd love for you to celebrate with us. We have some guys on the corner in the aisles here that will be able to bring you something if you forgot to grab one of these little things on your way in. Well, what I want to do, guys, today is I'm not going to sum up my sermon in some way and tie it greatly to or not greatly to communion today. I'm just going to leave this up here because I want to take... 20, 30 seconds, whatever it is. It'll feel like an eternity. I want you guys to consider praying this prayer today before we celebrate communion together. Go ahead. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us remember together. And after the meal, he took a cup. said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant, which is in my blood. Drink it in remembrance of me. Let us remember together. Well, God, we thank you for your word each and every day, Lord. I am so grateful that you have given us your very word, your instructions on how to live. 
that were not just, they're written to the Israelites thousands of years ago, Lord, but they are for us as well. And we can draw so many principles of an understanding of who you are. And God, I just pray today as, as we walk out here today, Lord, that we remember that we're not just walking out here as just Adam or whatever my brothers and sisters' names are, Lord, that we are not just walking out representing ourselves, that we are re- walking out representing you. And in doing that, Lord, we have got to live a life that is based off of your definition of right. Lord, we have to live a life that is built on that and live with integrity and live with honesty and all the other things that we see about you in your text so that we can accurately represent you in our world. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your grace, for your mercy, and for your forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by visiting liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.